This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Junis Yo. If we could think of one name synonymous with shaping global thinking of public and private sectors cooperation, many would say it's the World Economic Forum. But can this global platform help shape a more sustainable pathway for Asia's largest economy? When it comes to sustainable development, there has never been a more encouraging time to be in China. From poverty alleviation, renewable energy adoption, or waste sorting, progress is only moving at light speed. It is carried out at a scale so large you can see some of its efforts, like its reforestation projects, from space. Then came President Xi Jinping, whose announcement at last year's UN General Assembly made history: China would commit to becoming carbon neutral by 2060. Alongside this target is to ensure that the combined greenhouse gas emissions of its country peak by 2030. Now that is less than nine years away. This coming from the world's biggest emitter, it is a big deal. The devil is, of course, in the details, but it is becoming increasingly clear that China is changing and changing fast. So here to speak with me more about China's journey juggling economic priorities alongside environment and social progress is David Eggman. Chief Representative Officer of the World Economic Forum China and member of the Executive Committee. Hi, David. So pleased to have you join us today. Hi, Junis. Great to be with you. Thanks for、uh, taking the time today. My pleasure. So, David, with this context, I'd like to start with getting a, a broad stroke view of, of WEF's mission in China in light of its, you know, of the country's increasing leadership on climate change. Could you perhaps tell us more about its journey in China since its inception? Maybe and and also how it's evolved with its economic development. Absolutely, I mean the the World Economic Forum has been engaged with China since really 1979, when when our founder and executive chairman Klaus Schwab read about the reform and opening up measures that Deng Xiaoping was taking and and reached out to him and said, "You should share with the world at our Davos meeting." Uh, what China is doing, and 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 bring in the international community to support China in these efforts. And、uh, he then made his first trip here in in 1980. And we've been hosting events here in China every year since 1981. In the first phase, it was really about bringing international best practice and international CEOs to exchange with their Chinese peers and and really you know help China along in that reform and opening up process. But then, in 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 the early 2000s, probably 2004, 2005, we realized that the story and the narrative were really changing. And in fact,、um, what was much more interesting was the story of China going global and the way in which Chinese companies、um, were going out and were were engaging with the world and and moving into new markets. The way in which、uh, Chinese innovation was really taking off and 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 new companies were emerging. And so. We created our second biggest meeting after the the Davos meeting、uh, here in China、um, to really try and capture that innovation and that dynamism of of China really moving onto the global stage. And a big part of that, I have to say, wasn't just around technological innovation; it was already also around sustainability and environment and the way in which、um, you know China was working on some of the big social issues on poverty alleviation and so on. Interestingly, we're now in a in a sort of a new phase since、um, since the beginning of 2000, where we're still working on building those bridges、um, going out, but but also because people can't really travel to China right now,、um, we've been working a lot more with the the China offices of international companies 
to really um, bridge uh, uh, and build dialogue and, and understanding. And I think that's an important function that the World Economic Forum has been, been playing over all these years, is really trying to, to help people understand China and to help you know, China understand the world. Um, and that's particularly relevant on things like um, ESG, on, on climate change, on, on understanding what um, Chinese companies and what Chinese government is, is doing here. So, um, you know, in that sense, you know, our mission is, is uh, in a way more and more important than ever. That's really interesting. It, it's, I mean, it's quite clear to me, of course, that the World Economic Forum is, is um, you know, quite versatile in its uh, direction as well. And, and I guess for you, your journey with, with uh, the World Economic Forum goes a long way back. You personally led a couple of very prominent programs, uh, the Forum for, of uh, Young Global Leaders, the Global Shapers Community and more. So, so in your opinion, what keeps the forum unique through the years? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've been around the organization a long time. I think about 17 years, so I'm I'm one of the dinosaurs. Um, but um, <laughs> I think uh, there there is hope for for uh, for, for us. Um, but mm. you know, I think what's been fascinating to me is it doesn't really feel like that long um, because every mm. two or three years I've I've changed roles, and and that sort of answers your question indirectly. The the forum is an amazing organization because it's a it's a not-for-profit foundation. Um, which is now recognized as an international organization um, that, mm-hmm. that has this, this big mission to improve the state of the world. And, and you know, it's a, it's a challenge to know on a daily basis, well, well how, do, how do we know we improve the state of the world uh, today? Uh, there are lots of different ways you can do that. And so I think the organization has been incredibly entrepreneurial and, and innovative um, in terms of, of developing programs and initiatives to really help companies um, who want to support that mission and who want to engage uh, with society, want to engage with government, who want to engage with NGOs to to improve the state of the world. Um, And and so we've sort of constantly had to, to, you know, creatively destroy the things that we've made and, and build new things because, you know, it's so much about relevance. Um, you know, yeah. if our organization ceases to be useful and ceases to be relevant, then then we will cease to exist. We're not like a United Nations organization that has a treaty and government funding supporting it. We're, we're all private sector funded. We have to earn those partnership and membership revenues every year by adding value to the companies. At the same time, we're not a lobbying organization or, or an implementing agency for those companies. What we really are is a this neutral platform that builds those coalitions um, between, between business and civil society so that you can pool the resources and funds and expertise to make stuff happen. So, you know, yeah. as an individual company like, like say, Unilever, you know, that has um, goals and, and, and targets that they want to achieve in terms of sustainability can be a lot more effective if they collaborate with other companies, including their competitors in this space to to get big action. You know, if it's something like taking palm oil out of the supply chain, that's not something Mm -hmm. that a company can do alone. It needs to collaborate with NGOs. It needs to collaborate with governments. And and to do that at scale and to really make a ding in the universe and to really move the needle on that issue, it's better if you can can pool that effort together with other like-minded companies and, and organizations. And so that's the, the convening role or the way in which the, the World Economic Forum can use its, its convening power 
to make those things happen. But, you know, that agenda changes every year, changes every month. Um, and, and so we're constantly addressing new needs that come up. We're constantly reassessing what we're doing and, and exiting from things that, that no longer make sense. And so I think that that quest for relevance and that, that entrepreneurial spirit, which, um, you know, even though we're 50 years old as an organization is still very present because our, our founder and executive chairman is still very active in the organization, that, that sort of, you know, uh, spirit, entrepreneurial spirit of, of not feeling satisfied and, and not being afraid to start over, I think is really, is really prevalent in the organization. It's a big part of our success, I think. That's incredible. I mean, 50 years in the making. And, and I guess, uh, you know, when you talked about the, the journey from China, it started way back in, in the 80s even. Um, and, and I guess for you, you built your team from scratch uh, from, was it 2015? Yeah, 2015 when I came over. Right. Okay. So I guess uh, over the years and then six years when since your inception, you obviously helmed a, a dynamic team, uh, you know, driving a, a plethora of programs geared towards China's key business sectors. Maybe just share with us, with us a little bit more about what's keeping your team busy then this year. Well, I think there's there's a couple of things. I would say in the mm. in the macro context, um, this you know what I was talking about, which particularly came up in the last year um, of of trying to to build a bridge between China and the rest of the world. Um, that's been really critical. Um, that's been um, as much, you know, sort of working with the National Health Commission of China to take the experience of, of medical practitioners on the front line of COVID and share that with medical officers and, and, and doctors around the world. Um, or, you know, even just yesterday, we, we were running a, a policy dialogue um, with the National Development and Reform Commission, um, where they are particularly looking at supply chain resilience and how uh, China is working with, um, you know, across Asia on supply chain resilience and, and, you know, how that dynamic is changing due to the pandemic and due to, to geopolitics. So we mobilized a bunch of international companies to sit and, and, and dialogue with the government and give, you know, some pretty, some pretty open and, and straight, straightforward feedback back. Um, and, and I think that's really appreciated. So, you know, I think mm. that's, that's an important role we continue to play on, on our, our sort of our industry work. Um, we're active in a, in a lot of different sectors in financial services, healthcare, smart cities, mobility, advanced manufacturing. We've got initiatives in all those areas, everything from sort of looking at the future of fintech in, in, uh, in China to looking how we better connect uh, smart cities along the Belt and Road to, you know, sort of what are the what are the advanced manufacturing um, factories of the future look like? How are they more green and sustainable? How can you use tech to make um, the circular economy uh, really, really come alive? Uh, and then we have a whole pillar of work, uh, which is really um, focused on the environment um, in terms of climate change and, and uh, net zero uh, targets. Uh, but also in terms of biodiversity and nature-based solutions, um, ocean mm -hmm. health, and so on. Because, you know, a lot of these issues, as, as you well know, um, you know, China is really essential to the solution. And so if, yes. if China's not at the table in a major way, uh, as it is on, on climate change uh, and so on, we just can't, can't get the world, um, we can't reach those, those, um, those targets. And, you know, China has done so much on, if you look at the, the sustainable development goals 
in terms of eradicating poverty and other things. So, you know, I think there's, it's not just sort of essential to have China at the table for the commitments and the, the that it bears you know, and, and the, the action it can have given its large population and its large economy. It's also about the amazing best practice, which is which has emerged um, in, in China's development story over the last 40 years. I mean, there's, there's no um, country in the world that has had such an incredible uh, transformation and, and development. And so, you know, what are the what are the lessons there for other um, countries to learn from? So we, we see China's engagement really as essential um, in, in pretty much all the work of the, the World Economic Forum. So our team here, which is now about 40, 43 people, um, you know, really sees themselves as, as those ambassadors to try and um, engage uh, China globally into everything we do. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. And when I visited you last, uh, it was an incredible office you have, but also, I mean, the people we meet are, are really dynamic. And I think this is very encouraging. Um, I, I couldn't help but wonder then, so because WEF is registered as a foreign nonprofit uh, organization in China, um, many people say that it's tricky. It's a tricky status to hold on to. Uh, there's a lot of tedious levels of reporting. Uh, you know, there's some limitations to what one can do if you're a foreign nonprofit organization. Uh, has this affected your priorities in driving progress in the country? Um, not, not really. I mean, I think, um, you know, it, it, the reality uh, for foreign NGOs in, in the current geopolitical context is, you know, it is sometimes uh, difficult or sensitive. Um, things that you were doing um, previously now maybe have a new a new nuance uh, to it. But I think, you know, the, the World Economic Forum is, is, is really lucky because we have a very long um, friendship with China and, and we are, our supervising ministry is the National Development and Reform Commission. And, and so, you know, we have been a partner in China's, you know, reform and opening up over so many years um, that I think there's a really uh, solid basis of, of trust and and what the World Economic Forum is working on in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, creating more economic and social development in the world is perfectly coherent and aligned with what, what China is trying to do. Um, and I so, see. you know, I think for, for us, it's we probably have a lot easier time than than some other um ngos but um you know and and what i would say is you know we're we're like all ngos we're a representative office right so we're we're a, a cost center for our global organization you know we don't do fundraising here in china we don't um you know engage in lobbying or things like that so actually the the the, the status the, the nature of our status actually makes it easier in some ways because um, you know, our, 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 our limits um, are pretty clear. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, compared to other countries, um, I've seen, you know, the, the NGO space is, I'm probably going to get hate mail for this, but, you know, it's notoriously, it's notoriously inefficient, right? You have a lot of NGOs working on the same issues. You have private yeah. foundations and philanthropists who sometimes engage in issues for their own, um, maybe their own satisfaction or their own personal um, gratification. And so you get a lot of duplication of effort. You get a lot of um, sort of inefficiencies. And I think one thing that the Chinese system, you know, which is not perfect, but one of the things it is doing is trying to put in some, some controls and some, some mechanisms to sort of validate what, what NGOs are doing and what the impact is. And I think, 
you know, every country has to figure out how to regulate the behavior of, of legal entities uh, within its borders. Um, but I think there are, you know, despite the challenges, I think there are some lessons to be learned from that of, of trying to create a more transparent and efficient marketplace for NGOs. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think you're absolutely right there. But I guess for you, did you, you know, could you recall some moments where you, you faced difficulties then? Where, you know, for example, if, uh, um, you know, there was an engagement you had to have with a Chinese organization that was, that was just, you know, like hitting a, a wall to some extent. Not really. I mean, I think, you know, one of the, uh, I think anybody who, who who works and does business in China knows that, that, that the speed here is different. The speed of China is, is not yes. the speed of Europe. Things happen so fast here. And so I think most <laughs> of our challenges are, are around, you know, keeping up with demand or, or pivoting fast enough. I mean, you can be wanting to work right, with yes. ministry for, for months and months, and not having any feedback from that ministry. And then all of a sudden you get a call or a WeChat saying, please come and see the minister at 5 p.m. today. So you have to drop everything you're doing and, <laughs> and, and, and rush over and meet with the ministry. And, and that's just, that, that, that's sort of the right. way it works. And, you know, pre-COVID that was probably, you know, that uncertainty was, was maybe challenging. Now it feels like that uncertainty is the norm. Like it's, it's very difficult for organizations right now and companies to plan beyond the next, you know, three or four months. Um, yes. Because there's so much mm. uncertainty in the system. And so in that sense, I think some of the things that, that um, you know, might have seemed difficult or, or challenging previously, I think now have become the norm in lots of areas. And, and I, would, I would argue that, that companies doing business in China face the same kind of uncertainty that NGOs do, um, just different set of challenges. So. Yeah, speaking of um, of unexpected uh, changes as well, the, the special annual meeting that was scheduled in Singapore in August has been had been cancelled. Um, I mean, this is obviously disappointing. But are there other noteworthy initiatives that we can look forward to in Asia? Well, it is it is surprising and disappointing, but you know that's that's the reality of this this global pandemic. You know, we we saw that that vaccination rates um, you know weren't where where they were targeted to be. We saw new new variants and new outbreaks, and um, and I think you know it was a wise decision to 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 really focus on the safety and health of our participants and the people of Singapore above all, and and really make mm. sure that we're not um, you know part of the, the, the problem, we're part of the solution. And so um, it was a very difficult decision, but I think it was the right one. Um, and we're disappointed not to see um, our, our, our friends and members. Uh, many of the CEOs that I talked to are, are desperate to get together again and, and just reach some, some sort of normalcy and be able to, to talk face-to-face -face around important issues. They're, they're kind of getting the, the video, video conference fatigue. Um, but I think yes. for, for, for China, um, we, we have a lot of activities um, that will be focused around Asia. Um, given the, the, the importance of Asia in terms of growth and development and innovation, I, I think this will remain a strong focus. We've run a number of dialogues with CEOs um, uh, and, and public figures. So we did a big one with uh, Premier Li. Uh, Kachang of China last year, uh, as well as um, Prime Minister Suga of Japan. Um, and we'll see more of those just because the CEOs, you know, oftentimes with the virtual, you can, you can really arrange um, very high level face-to-face -face, uh, dialogues that, that 
that you wouldn't be able to do given you know heads of state travel uh, restrictions and and so on. So in some ways, we've right. been able to facilitate more access to global leaders um, through the virtual connections. Um, and then we have a lot of activities that are sort of connected to the Belt and Road Initiative, whether that's the green investment principles that we're working on, um, you know, to sort of make sure that all the investments that are taking place along the Belton Road are, are contributing to sustainable goals. Um, we're doing a lot of work on smart cities and how you connect those cities along the Belton Road. Got a ton of work that we're doing on, on trade, um, particularly now with the, the RCEP um, and that the big free trade zone across, uh, across Asia. So there's a lot of excel, exciting developments, I think, that, that we're working on. And again, it, it comes back to this relevance. You know, we have to be working on the, the, the issues that our, that our CEOs care about um, yes. and, and hopefully that's all building up to our, our annual meeting of new champions, um, which we'll have in, in, in early November here in China, in Tianjin. Um, okay. Hopefully by then there will be some corridors opened up and we, we might be able to get people from, from at least from Asia joining that meeting. Um, but, you know, time, time will tell. I think um, we're, we're not going to make any big commitments on international participation in person until we see how the situation evolves. But that, that meeting's traditionally been a very big one with the domestic companies and governments. So I would imagine it'll be, um, it'll be another um, a big meeting this year and big focus for our organization. Yes, I think we're all looking forward to that. I have another question and I can't help but ask this as a, as a reporting specialist myself. A key initiative that has gained a lot of attention within the sustainability community has been the World Economic Forum's Stakeholder Capitalism Metrics, which on paper seeks to address that holy grail of a consistent reporting standard. In your opinion, how has WEF's Stakeholder Capitalism Metrics been received among Chinese organizations? So this initiative came out from our, our top uh, business leaders who for the last couple of years have been really um, pushing on that, that holy grail, um, particularly from the investors community um, and, and just you know, sort of saying, look, there's so many standards out there. None of them are perfect. Is there a yeah. framework that we can create that, that kind of stitches them all together? And so it's not you know, meant to replace um, existing standards, but it's meant to, to, to fill in the gaps and to complement and to, to sort of put it into a, a, a narrative and a logical framework that um, governments and investors and companies can, can easily understand. And we've got um, quite a few companies um, who, have, who have sort of signed up and, and, and launched on the, the principles um, and adopted the, you know, made a commitment to using this framework uh, including some some Chinese companies um, from Greater China and and you know organizations like the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, who are you know as you know a big driver of um, both the, the the regulatory reporting side, um, but also themselves yes. um, good behavior. So um, they're one of the original yes. signatories. Um, and and during the course of of last summer, we we really started building up a group of of what we're calling ESG champions for China. Um, because we wanted to take this, this global framework uh, of, of, of stakeholder capitalism and see how, how we could apply it to, um, to China. And we've got about 20 companies engaged in that effort. Um, and what I think is really, really interesting is you've got some companies that are quite advanced and, and, and ready to, to, to commit to, to, those, to that framework and those metrics. 
At the same time, we're also working to raise awareness. And, and, and you know, I, I, I describe it as, you know, we've got to meet the companies where they are on their, their ESG journey. Um, and so what's, what's very interesting right now is that you've got both the regulatory side and also the capital markets definitely driving yeah. ESG in China. I mean, there was a, a, a firm uh, that recently, um, you know, launched a, a green bond and it was a Chinese company. It was like 300% oversubscribed and they couldn't keep, you know, they couldn't <laughs> keep up with the demand. So, so right. there's, you know, the, the capital is definitely chasing after um, uh, and pushing the companies in this direction as are the regulators. But then you've got this awareness or this kind of deep understanding challenge where people say, oh, yes, we've, we, we, we're working hard in ESG. And when you sort of dig deeper, they don't really know what that means or what to do. And I think the other thing we saw, we just you know, released a big, big report on this, was that the, the ecosystem here mm-hmm. in China, the, the ecosystem of professional services and so on, is just not um, where, where it could be. Or, or if you benchmark it compared to, to Europe and, and the United States, um, there's there's still some work to do here in China to build up those accredited professionals who can do the environmental audits or to build the, the, the reporting systems um, that can track the, the carbon footprints and so on. But, um, you know, the, the one thing I would say is that China in this field, like in so many others, um, through technology and innovation and just that, that China speed, it's incredible how, how quickly um, China is closing those gaps. And so even though there's an ecosystem deficit today, I think that's going to be closed pretty qu- quickly. And, and now with the, the, the sort of double carbon targets for peak uh, carbon in 2030 and, and, um, and net zero at 60, I mean, there's going to be a rush to make progress. And so you know, we really feel that this is a, a leapfrog moment for China where China can jump ahead um, and, and, and go from maybe a, 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 an ESG or sustainability, um, you know, being on the back foot to now, you know, jumping ahead and being a global leader in this space. And that's, that's going to be fantastic to watch and fascinating to watch. Um, but we also see a really strong, um, you know, duty on our part to help, uh, you know, to be helpful in that process and, and to help uh, China on that, on that acceleration. Yeah, no, indeed. I, I think it's, it's wonderful to be witnessing this, uh, this, this moment in history almost, um, okay, I'm, I'm so conscious of time. So I, I just have one more question. And, and this is framed at uh, the, the potential listeners who are genuinely interested in China's development, uh, you know, want to be part of this journey. So when it comes to engaging uh, on sustainable development issues in China, what are some of the things you would advise uh, these organizations to keep in mind, you know, from a senior levels perspective, but even within the team itself, how can we engage China better? Well, I think it's it's um, it's interesting. What I was saying earlier, you know, investors are are looking for this. I mean, uh, you know, there's there's mm. both a, a, a supply side and the demand side on this, and and I think um, China can can provide a lot of innovations, um, and there are things that can be piloted here. Um, which, which maybe you can't do in other countries because there's not the top-down support, or there's not the, you know, there are legacy systems or legacy thinking in place. And so, you know, one of the things that 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 China can do um, is meet that, you know, investor 
uh, demand and, and, and the smart companies here can, can attract the smart capital. But I think more, more broadly, I mean, sustainable development and sustainability provide that common ground for collaboration between China and other countries. Um, you know, we all want a healthy planet for our children. And this is maybe one area where it'll be easier for China to collaborate um, rather than compete with others. You know, um, today there's so many challenges around technology innovation or manufacturing and supply. I mean, there's, there's areas where China has been a leader which are now more complicated by the, the global situation. Um, but environment and, and sustainable development uh, are, are an area which are pretty, pretty open and pretty safe for collaboration. And there's a real vested common interest. Um, and I think the other thing, mm. too, is, is not just thinking about China as the product or thinking about China as the, the destination. I mean, China has all levels of, of development existing at once you know i mean you've got very poor regions of china and very very rich regions of china you've got you know um all levels of technological deployment and implementation uh and so you know i think this is a tremendous asset for china for the future because when it when it can export its solutions when it when it when it when it when it wants to share its expertise it can share its expertise with countries and organizations that are all at all stages of development because True. China is simultaneously doing that, you know, all over the country. And we <laughs> see this in talking to, to, to Chinese companies, for example. I mean, you talk to a company like, like JD or, or Alibaba, yes. and they have very different deployment of their e-commerce platforms and delivery strategies in in the in Shanghai and Beijing than they do in the most remote parts of, of the country. And, and so that makes them uh, much more empathetic and much more innovative, um, you know, as a provider of solutions for for countries in Africa or across Southeast Asia or, or in Latin America, uh, probably more empathetic and understanding of the, the development reality than, than maybe some of the Western um, companies who, who really started and, and have, have, have dominated in, in developed markets. Um, they maybe lack the, the low cost efficiencies and, and some of the empathy and business models that are needed for um, working in some of the poorest parts of the world. But, but China already has that. But I think it's also a, a bit of a strategic challenge for China as well, because, you know, you've got to keep lifting people out of poverty here in China, while at the same time, you know, innovating faster and, 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 and helping the, 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 the rich cities become more, more um, effective and, 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 and keep that, that GDP growth. Um, that can help, you know, trickle down and, 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 and lift the rest of the country out of poverty. So it's not an easy challenge for, for China. And I think, you know, the good news, I would say, is, that, is this space, um, this emerging space uh, around sustainable development, I think, provides ample opportunity for, for collaboration and cooperation um, between China and, and, and foreign companies and foreign organizations and foreign governments. So it's probably the one mm. space right now where we're still seeing cooperation and collaboration. Um, despite the very challenging um, global context that we're all in. No, I, I agree with you on that. Uh, and even for us, when we report on news uh, on sustainable development, there's so much encouraging stories coming out of China. And, and I think the world has a lot to learn in, in that respect as well. 
Wonderful. So, um, okay, I guess uh, I, I have to leave you here. And thank you so much for being our guest here today. Again, it was the most interesting discussion. Thank you. And thank you too to our listeners for tuning in to the EB podcast. For more coverage on these issues and more, check out our website, www.ecobusiness.com and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Spotify. Our podcast editor is Benjamin Wong and I'm Junis Yo. Thanks for listening.